toward healing. For all of you that are here right now, this is our collective history. First Nations delegates share their pain with Pope Francis and hope for the future. From pandemic to endemic. I have heard far too often in the past couple of weeks, thank God that COVID is over. It's not over, we've transitioned to an endemic. Transitioning from public health orders to personal responsibility. And hundreds of millions of dollars potentially flushed away. That's our money. That's your money, that's your neighbor's money, that's your mom's money down the street. A major lawsuit over Metro Vancouver's stalled sewage treatment project. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Chris is off tonight. An historic day in Rome today as First Nations delegates met with Pope Francis. Mixed feelings about this visit to the Vatican among Indigenous survivors in Canada. But some of those who've made the trip say it is a huge step for their healing and sense of hope. A warning, some viewers may find this story distressing. Neetu Garcha joins us from Rome. Neetu, what did they say about how the meeting went? Well, Sophie, some delegates who met with Pope Francis today told us that the meeting was informal, gifts were exchanged, and one elder, Fred Kelly, even gave Pope Francis an indigenous name of White Feather to commemorate an eagle that now flies with a white dove towards peace and harmony. A song of support and strength from these BC First Nations leaders to another. So we wanted to sing our, our songs uh, to give you that strength and hold you up for this very important day. On the morning, Tecumloops to Shwetmik, Cookpi, Roseanne Casimir and 13 other delegates meet with Pope Francis, her message to survivors back home. Thank you for all the love and the support and, you know, sharing with me your trauma, your pain, your frustration, your anger, but most importantly, your love. And it's your love that got me here today. Wearing an outfit, she says, signifies the lost children of the former Kamloops Indian Residential School as she boarded the bus to Vatican City, prepared to highlight to the pontiff the significant role the Catholic Church plays in releasing records in the possession of the Oblates of Mary Immaculate Archive in Rome to help identify the bodies buried in those unmarked graves. And as the members marked this historic moment, a rare two-hour meeting that went twice as long as scheduled, outside in St. Peter's Square, more songs of strength and support before they walked back out with palpable positivity. Come on, you guys! A wonderful day, because during our discussion with him, we could hear the, the drums, we, we could hear our people singing. And it felt tremendous. And as they sang, Pope Francis was being asked to revoke the Doctrine of Discovery, a centuries-old document that informed European explorers to legitimize colonization. They want it replaced with something that acknowledges Indigenous people's right to be treated with dignity and respect in a reversal from childhood realities. When I was four and a half years old, being thrown literally into a residential school, the first experience I have is to have my braids shorn. My clothes changed, deloused, and beaten up for speaking my language, the only language that I know. 
Elder Fred Kelly also talked about how the country's colonial policy towards Indigenous people helped provide a playbook for apartheid. South Africa abolished it, but in Canada, the Indian Act is still in place. And despite delegates' optimism, there was no direct response from Pope Francis about a visit to Canada or issuing a formal apology. Two things that could come during the final audience on Friday. Sophie? Nitu Garcha in Rome for us. Nitu, thank you. Of course, we understand these stories may be triggering and there is support available for survivors and their families. The number is toll-free, 24 hours a day, and you can speak in confidence. It's 1-800-721-0066. Well, more COVID restrictions are being dropped tomorrow. As of April 1st, fully vaccinated travelers entering Canada will no longer need to provide proof of a negative test. They will still need to provide proof of vaccination through the ArriveCan website or app 72 hours before arrival. The rules have not changed for partially vaccinated or unvaccinated Canadians who will still need to follow testing requirements and quarantine for 14 days. Foreign nationals who are not fully vaccinated are still prohibited from entering the country. Random testing of travelers, no matter their vaccination status, will remain in place. Life in B.C. is moving somewhat back to pre-pandemic normal. With those entry requirements changing tomorrow, tourism is ramping back up and the province is set to make an announcement on vaccine cards next week. As Richard Zussman explains, one of B.C.'s top doctors is saying COVID-19 is now transitioning to the endemic phase. With one drop of the ball, it all seems, dare you say, normal. Premier John Horgan out on the road, smiles, handshakes, no masks. Just one of many transition points in managing COVID-19. People are feeling more comfortable. Uh, they were exhausted, quite frankly, as you know, uh, from the, the restrictions. On Tuesday, the province will announce vaccine cards are no longer required, while also laying out a path to get a fourth dose of COVID-19 vaccines to those that need one. My full expectation is that everyone will be getting a fourth shot in the fall at some point, probably along with their flu shot, and we're just going to slowly build towards that as we get used to this new world of endemic COVID. That word, endemic, has become commonplace here. The World Health Organization still calls COVID a pandemic, but BC's strategy has shifted to individual risk management and away from orders for individuals and the business community. It is clearly a time of transition, whether you're at one of the conferences or a hockey game or just uh, out in your office and just working as you did prior to the pandemic. I think people are setting their own behavior. Next week, a cruise ship will return here for the first time since 2019. And on Friday, fully vaccinated travelers into Canada will not have to show proof of a negative COVID-19 test. This comes as Ontario and Quebec have announced a sixth wave of virus cases, but haven't added restrictions. The measures taken with respect to the Delta wave are different than the measures taken with respect to the Omicron variant of concern. So we continue to adapt. When it comes to adapting, the restaurant sector is in the front of the line and is welcoming the removal of the last of the COVID restrictions. It's our responsibility now to make sure that we, we keep the confidence of our guests and that's up to us. It's not, Dr. Henry can do anything now. We have to ensure that we keep that health and safety forefront. 
The goal from the Premier is for the province to continue to give people their own tools to manage the virus so goals can keep going in to the net. Oh, Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. All right, so let's take a look at our latest COVID-19 numbers in BC. We have 281 people in hospital. 42 of those patients are in the ICU. There have been two more COVID-related deaths, and we have 249 new confirmed cases in BC. Keith Baldry joins us with more on the numbers. Keith, after a steady decline, they have plateaued a little bit, and new cases mm -hmm. seem to be slowly rising. So are we starting our sixth wave now? Hard to say, uh, but again, the numbers are going up just a little bit. Uh, nothing worrisome quite yet, but we may have a sixth wave. But every wave looks different than the other, so we may have a sixth wave, but we may not have severe illness associated with it. Here's the positivity rate that has been creeping up for the last 11 days since we started opening up when f about 5.6% uh, March 20th. We're now approaching 7% two days ago. Again, not a cause for alarm. That's still w well within the reason of uh, not to panic at all whatsoever. Our Hospitalizations have plateaued now. They had been dropping significantly, but we've been hovering around the 270 uh, hospitalizations a day. Uh, the numbers in the ICUs have dropped below 50 consistently for some days now, but that positivity rate is going up. Now, we peaked at the positivity rate back in early January when it approached about 25%, but back then we had twice the number of people in hospital, uh, twice to three times the number of people in the ICU, and that's not happening right now. So fingers crossed if we have that sixth wave, it doesn't wash over us in terms of really increasing the hospitalizations and the ICU. So again, we'll see what happens in the days ahead. All right, thanks for that, Keith. RCMP on Vancouver Island are appealing for help finding a 13-year-old girl who's been missing for more than two weeks, but she's been posting on social media saying she's safe. It's an unusual case involving the Ministry of Child and Family Services. And as Kylie Stanton reports, her father is in jail for refusing to say where she is. It's the photo that's been circulating for two weeks now, as BC RCMP continue to investigate the circumstances around the disappearance of Peyton McDonald. Right now, we are concerned, and our primary focus as the RCMP is to locate her and ensure her well-being. The 13-year-old was last seen on March 15th. The next day, Ladysmith RCMP had received a request from the Ministry of Child and Family Development to assist with a wellness check on the sailboat she was believed to be living on. Peyton was not located, and because her father Bryn was in violation of a court order to produce her, he was arrested and remains in custody. Investigators believe Peyton is with someone known to her father. Upon learning of the ongoing investigation, Thomas Potter reached out to Global News. Yeah, she's at my house. In Burnaby. Yeah. Saying Peyton has been in his care since March 13th, and the concern is unwarranted. Her father, her legal, lawful guardian, asked me to look after his daughter. She is taken care of. She has a room of her own. She has a bed of her own. She has a dresser of her own. She has a closet of her own. Hi, my name is Peyton McDonald. Peyton herself put out this video on social media holding up a newspaper dated March 29th. In it, she defends her father. He takes care of me. I want you to leave us alone. Police confirm they are aware of the video. 
And as for the Ministry of Children and Family Development, it provided this statement, writing, Everyone has a duty to report a situation in which a child or youth may be at risk. I want to have assurances that she's going to go back to her father. Potter says he's simply trying to protect Peyton from having to relive the time she spent in foster care prior to her father being granted sole custody. Peyton is wildly traumatized about the RCMP and about social services as part of what's happened to her in her history. Still, the onus is on the RCMP to ensure the child's safety, and they have no plans on backing down. We want to ensure Peyton's well-being. Kylie Stanton, Global News. A terrifying attack at a SkyTrain station has led to charges against two youths. On March 10th, a man was chased into the Burquitlam station by two suspects, one of them armed with a machete. The victim tried to protect himself with a pylon, but one attacker eventually struck him in the side of the head with the weapon. He needed multiple staples to close the wound. We do not believe that the public is at risk as this is an isolated incident. Uh, the suspects and the victims were known to each other. Um, we don't believe that this, the public is at a, a great risk, no. After an extensive investigation by transit police, the Lower Mainland Emergency Response Team and Port Moody Police, two suspects aged 16 and 17 who cannot be named were arrested and faced several charges, including aggravated assault. The victim is recovering at home. Vancouver police are looking for information about two homicides from 1988. Two young women who were friends were killed just six weeks apart that summer. Lisa Gavin was last seen near midnight on August 12th at Broadway in St. Catharines. She was a sex worker who struggled with addiction. She told a friend she was going to work and would be back in an hour, but she never returned and her partially clad body was found near Knight and 49th. Some weeks later, her friend Glenna Sowen, known as Dusty, was last seen near East 6th and St. George Street. She was discovered September 30th in bushes near West 24th and Willow. She was also a sex worker. The killer or killers have managed to evade arrest all these years. For more details about the murders, go online to vpdcoldcases.ca. More problems for Metro Vancouver's stalled sewage treatment plant project. The still unfinished plant has been plagued by delays and ballooning budgets, and now it may be facing legal trouble. How hundreds of millions of dollars could be going down the toilet. Next on the News Hour. Stolen goods with high sentimental value. A boy's desperate plea for the safe return of his cherished childhood items. That's later. And stars hit the street, celebrities dropping the pocket, Jackpool Plaza, with a serious message. Right now, though, it's already years late and way over budget. And now a troubled wastewater treatment project is headed to court. The company hired to build a new half-billion-dollar sewage treatment plant in North Vancouver is suing Metro Vancouver. And each side blames the other for things going so wrong. Paul Johnson reports. For those who've been tallying up the skyrocketing costs of the North Shore's new sewage treatment plant, you may have to get out your calculators again. The original contractor for the project, Axiona, who were terminated after a fight over costs and time frame, have now filed a lawsuit in B.C. Supreme Court. The company says it diligently met its obligations. But due to what they say were conflicting and error-ridden design specifications, they weren't able to finish the job for anything close to what they were contracted for. 
The lawsuit demands $95 million for work Axiona already did, plus another $200 million in damages. Even if a fraction of this had to be paid, this would add to the cost of a project that's now estimated at about a billion dollars and being completed years late. We're spending more and more money and giving more and more power through our local governments than we ever have before. Chris Sims is with the Canadian Taxpayer Association and has been critical of how the project has been managed. She says as municipalities in B.C. now regularly do projects in the hundreds of millions of dollars, it's time for more supervision in the form of a province-wide auditor for projects like this. This is why we need a permanent, thorough, efficient, and strong office of the Municipal Auditor General. Back at the work site, a new contractor has been brought in to pick up where Axiona left off. But as to exactly when and at what price the project will actually come in at, that's not expected to be known until the fall. Metro Vancouver told Global News Thursday that it upheld its end of the contract and only terminated Axiona after they say it became clear the company couldn't finish the work on time and on budget. Paul Johnson, Global News. Coming up, it was a giant landslide and massive tsunami spotted by chance. We're talking 180 kilometers an hour um, by the time the, the landslide hit the lake. How scientists have recreated the force of nature and why it's a warning. Plus, pinning down the cause of one of last summer's most destructive wildfires. Extra volume here through New Westminster, southbound on McBride. After clearing a couple of earlier problems over at the Portman Bridge, the Patello was the obvious alternate route. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One at the Patello Bridge. Old and unserviced brakes, frigid temperatures, and an inexperienced train master are being blamed for a deadly train derailment in field in 2019. Trainee Daniel Waldenberger, uh, pardon me, Daniel Waldenberger-Balmer, conductor Dylan Parody, and engineer Andrew Dockrell were all killed when the two-kilometer-long CP rail train loaded with grain lost its brakes and plummeted into the Kicking Horse River. The Transportation Safety Board is making three recommendations to prevent future tragedies, including the installation of automatic parking brakes on freight trains that run in cold climates and at steep grades, and also stricter safety standards for those trains. The mother of one of the victims says it doesn't go far enough. It's recommendations, and recommendations is all that it can be. And uh, they cannot get accountability for the men, and they cannot um, make their recommendations actionable. That's going to be up to the goodwill of CP Rail and perhaps Transport Canada and our government. The TSB said there have been many safety concerns with breaking on breaking on Field Hill. But despite numerous reports and complaints filed, it was normalized and nothing was really done to address those concerns. Families of the three men killed are hoping change will finally come. Well, no one saw it as it happened, but a giant landslide in B.C. that left a huge swath of damage has been getting a lot of attention and study since it was first discovered. A revealing new report is out, and as Ted Trinecki tells us, it could be a red flag for other parts of the province. 
It was a helicopter pilot who first spotted the carnage. A mass of rocks and boulders had crashed into the Elliott Creek Glacial Lake, creating a 100-meter-high tsunami. And now a new study has some startling findings. One was how fast that wave was moving. We're talking 180 kilometers an hour um, by the time the, the landslide hit the lake. Scientists were able to create an animation of what happened on November 28, 2020. Luckily, no one was in the area because no one could have outrun a flooding event that was over in a matter of minutes. A 100-meter tsunami is almost as tall as the highest span on the Lionsgate Bridge. You know, the terrain is much, much steeper, much tighter. And so there's really only so much horizontal motion that can happen. And that water really has nowhere to go but, but up. The reason they were able to replicate what happened so accurately is because glaciers in central BC are melting faster than almost anywhere else in the world. The modeling also showed how far downstream the flooding occurred, more than 11 kilometers, destroying salmon-spawning stream beds. The report's suggesting this should be a wake-up call. As glaciers melt, they leave unstable rock literally hanging in the air, and in some cases, it just needs a little push to make it let go. November 2020 was unusually wet. Precipitation in some cases is that important trigger for many of these events. It's not always the, the trigger and we still don't know the exact uh, straw that broke the camel's back. In many ways we were lucky. A, that no one was hurt and B, that the glacier had been so well studied prior to the slide. But luck can only go so far, and scientists are now looking closer at all melting glaciers, especially those with shoreline communities within striking distance of the next tsunami. Ted Chernecki, Global News. The BC Wildfire Service has determined what caused one of BC's most devastating wildfires last summer. The 83-square-kilometer White Rock Lake Fire west of Vernon burned for months and destroyed almost 80 homes in communities such as Monty Lake, Ewing's Landing, and Killiney Beach. After examining fire behavior, burn patterns, and other physical evidence, it's been determined it was caused by lightning. An area director says more emphasis should have been put on investigating how the fire was handled rather than how it started. We hear all kinds of anecdotal uh, evidence about what happened following the discovery of the fire and what action BC Wildfire did or did not take. And, uh, and it leaves us very, very concerned. Investigations are still underway into a number of other BC wildfires last summer. Up next, a family reunited. I feel blessed. The monumental effort to get their loved one out of Ukraine. Also ahead, the deteriorating situation in Mariupol and the roadblocks preventing escape. Good evening. Traffic is nice and steady in both directions over here at the Alex Fraser Bridge for the time being. Keep in mind, though, there are bridge joint repairs during the overnight hours, and that's affecting northbound traffic between 8 p.m. and 4 a.m. Get best-in-class protection and savings with BCAA Insurance. Learn more at bcaa.com. I'm Trish sending Global One above the Alex Fraser Bridge. A rare sign of internal dissent today in the Ukrainian government as President Volodymyr Zelensky fired two senior members of his National Security Service, calling them traitors. Zelensky also warned the situation around the besieged city of Mariupol is getting worse. 
Aaron MacArthur has the latest. Fighting block by block, pro-Russian soldiers fire at targets in the city center of Mariupol. Civilians desperate to get out. There are hopes a Red Cross convoy of humanitarian supplies will reach the besieged city by Friday, but buses to evacuate civilians have been repeatedly blocked by Russian troops. This man says we cook out here because we have no gas, no food, nothing. Despite promises of Russian withdrawals north of Kyiv, the fighting around the capital showing no signs of easing. NATO confirming Thursday a small number of Russian troops, including those at the Chernobyl nuclear reactor, may be pulling back to Belarus, but only to resupply and head to eastern parts of Ukraine. Meanwhile, Ukrainian forces have managed to retake cities in the last week, fully aware of what this war is costing. Erpin, a graveyard. Russian troops have made little progress in securing new territory in recent weeks. Bogged down by stiff resistance and poor logistics, the remains of Russian equipment scattered across northern Ukraine. The Russians are fighting stupidly, she says. They don't have a strategy or tactics. They're falling into the same traps. The United States promising more military aid to Ukraine. President Zelensky calling this week a turning point for the war. Ukrainian Defense Ministry now reporting more than 148 children have been killed in this conflict. More than 10 million people have been forced from their homes. Numbers only likely to grow larger. Aaron MacArthur, Global News. Well, after countless sleepless nights, a Ukrainian family has been reunited in Montreal. It took three generations of the family to organize the long journey to bring their patriarch home to safety. Global's Olivia O'Malley has the story. So that's something he couldn't leave behind. He definitely took it with him and packed it also in here. Gregory Fledermois was only able to bring some clothes and family photos to Montreal. The 89-year-old says he had a matter of minutes to pack this backpack before leaving Ukraine. <laughs> it was a spontaneous decision. On Wednesday, he visited the family business for the first time, where they are raising money for Ukraine. The senior planned to stay in his home country until his morale changed and his family decided he needed to be closer to his loved ones. He told my mom, he said, if something will happen to me, nobody would even know that I died. On March 9th, he took a bus to the Romanian border and crossed on foot. A friend took this picture before the trip to give to the woman hired to bring him to his hotel. I had to send them away beside his picture to recognize them because they've never seen each other, they don't speak a common language. The journey was long, but the almost 90-year-old says he was never discouraged. And he said, if I made the decision, I executed. Five days later, he flew to New York then drove to Montreal, and the family was reunited. I did really see me how. He said, yeah, it's uncomparable being alone or being within the whole family. She was saying that we can't stop talking. We're constantly sitting, we're constantly talking, we're, we're just so happy, I'm constantly hugging him. It's like, we just can't believe it. He even made it in time to meet his newest great-grandchild. Kravitsky is due this spring. I feel we're blessed. We're lucky. The family hopes Canada will be his forever home so they can stay together as a growing family.
Olivia O'Malley, Global News, Montreal. An outbreak of illness across Canada has prompted a warning from Health Canada about B.C. oysters. Almost 300 cases of norovirus and gastrointestinal illness have been reported in B.C., Alberta, Saskatchewan and Ontario. They're linked to oysters harvested between Denman Island and Vancouver Island. Police are... People, rather, are being urged to avoid eating raw or undercooked oysters and practice proper food handling practices. Food recalls have been issued and a number of oyster harvest areas in B.C. have been closed. Still ahead, simple items with immeasurable sentimental value. I had it since I was just born, like I've had it my whole 12 years. The precious mementos stolen from him and his appeal to get them back. And later... My goodness, could I make my own feature film? Could I make my own documentary? A film in five days. The intensive workshop aimed at Indigenous creators. Watching Global News Hour at 6. A truly Canadian event to highlight the threat of climate change today in downtown Vancouver. <laughs> Premier John Horgan dropping the ceremonial first ball at Jackpool Plaza. The game bringing together Olympians, politicians and former NHLers to push the importance of fighting climate change. Scientists say climate change is threatening outdoor hockey, meaning playing on hard surfaces may soon be the only option left outside the structured confines of the hockey rink. I know as a hockey player, uh, few and far between uh, outdoor ice rinks left in this country in the winter time, and the seasons are shorter and shorter. And I think uh, it's just really important uh, that as athletes, uh, you know, we get in front of this cause and uh, keep pushing it to the forefront of making this world a better place for the next generations. The hockey game is part of the Globe Forum 2022, the forum exploring themes such as innovation and policy to help the world combat climate change. All right, let's bring in meteorologist Christy Gordon with a look at our weather forecast. What a gorgeous day it was today, Christy. I brought out the spring jacket and put away the winter one, hopefully for good. Yes, hopefully for good. I don't know. I wouldn't put it away too soon, Sophie. It is still, well, just the end of March, approaching April. Uh, but you may even need it tomorrow. Maybe not the winter jacket, but the rain jacket. Uh, we had Aurora Borealis across the province last night. It was viewed from various areas. Great video from Greg Reilly. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. This is from Oliver. But it was even spotted across the south coast. And I have some photos to show you uh, once we've enjoyed that a little bit. This one from Salt Spring Island. Thank you to Alan from that one. And look at this one from Warren. This is in Green Lake in the Caribou region. Stunning colors. And one last one viewing from Campbell River. Thank you to Louise for that one. So I'm so glad that some areas were able to enjoy that. We had spotty conditions today in the interior. A downpour of snow in through uh, Kamloops. And we had some pockets of precipitation in through the interior and our region. Tomorrow, though, we're back into periods of rain. And that's why I was telling Sophie to maybe not 
not put away that jacket just yet. If it's a rain jacket, you'll definitely need it tomorrow. The rain shifts out Saturday morning, although it will linger a little longer through the Fraser Valley, but we are transitioning into sunshine for our Saturday. In the meantime, the interior region's not bad in terms of precipitation tomorrow. Very light amounts. Really, the bulk of it will be across the south coast. So we'll see that push into the island in the morning and for Metro Vancouver in the afternoon. We come out of it on Saturday, although lingering showers in through the Fraser Valley. But then, Sophie, we're right back into periods of rain on Sunday. And the temperatures are going to drop below seasonal for this time of year. Uh, Before I leave you, though, I do want to show you our weather window for tonight. One last shot of the gorgeous Aurora Borealis from uh, the Fort St. John area. So thank you to Debbie for that one. And Sophie, keep that jacket handy. (laughs) All right, I will. Thank you, Christy. Well, while the dollar value might be low, some of the items stolen in a Vancouver break-in are priceless to their young owner, and he's pleading for help to get them back. As Catherine Urquhart reports, the theft happened while the Okanagan family was visiting Vancouver last Sunday. On the beat in downtown Vancouver, VPD officers are doing their usual patrols and something a little extra. You might say they're on plushy patrol. There's not a police officer out there who doesn't want to help, who doesn't want to be the one that finds the teddy bear or the security blanket. Since he was a baby, 12-year-old Tristan Espenhain hasn't been a day without his teddy bear and blanket. Highly sentimental gifts from his now-deceased grandparents. They're really important. They're, there's nothing you can do to replace them. They were, they're just really special to me. On Sunday, during a trip to Vancouver to see Cirque du Soleil, both were stolen from the Okanagan family's car, along with an iPhone and a wallet. It's like losing a loved one. And um, to see my son mourn, really, the loss of something that's been so precious to him for so many years is really hard to see. And I don't put blame on anyone. I just want it back. Tristan's mother spent hours scouring the downtown core, looking for the beloved bear and blanket, but nothing. Tristan's dad hopes someone will find the items. Somebody might walk by and see this discarded teddy bear. I'm sure it's not the guy that took it, but it's the guy, some innocent bystander that's seen it, might call us, call Global News, and we might get it back. For VPD officers, it's a slightly unusual file, but one they'd love to solve. We fanned it out to our officers, especially the officers who work um, on the east side, in the downtown east side, because quite often we do find things. The family has this message for whomever may have the blanket and Teddy. Maybe find it in your heart to return those items or make those items available for someone to return them to us. It means nothing to you, but it means the world to our son. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Hopefully he will find those items once again. All right, Squire is here now. What you got coming up? Well, we'll talk Canucks. And also, uh, despite losing last night to Panama, Canada still finished its World Cup qualifying group first overall. Uh, We're first because we deserved it. We're first because we're better. That's a spirit. Canada now awaits a World Cup draw, which is tomorrow morning to see who they get in their first round World Cup. I like that kind of confidence. All right, and later, aspiring Indigenous filmmakers making movie magic in one week.
All right, Squire is here, and even the optimists are <laughs> jumping off the bandwagon. Well, the bandwagon's starting to slow down, so it's yeah. safer to jump off now. Mm -hmm, that's true. Okay, so the glass half-full crowd is starting to feel a bit emptier when it comes to the Canucks playoff hopes. Those two losses to the Blues put Vancouver further in the red. The Canucks are still mathematically in the playoff race, but not only do they have to win a lot, they need the other teams in front of them to start losing a lot, and neither of those things have been happening enough. And here comes Thomas, trying to get behind Hughes. Robert Thomas, shorthanded, in on goal, he scores! This shorthanded goal against was the turning point in the Canucks' 4-3 loss to the Blues Wednesday night, making Vancouver's climb to a playoff spot even more steep. Even if the Canucks went 11-2 in their final 13, which would give them 95 points, it still might not be enough to get in. But their head coach majors in optimism, and he will never give up hope. I told them the story today. I said, my first year coaching in the NHL, I mean, uh, we needed to win 12 out of the last 13 games, and uh, we did, and we had to win the last seven, and we did to get in by one point. If, if there's not stories that, that it's happened, it's hard to believe, but I mean, when you have stories like this that aren't too far-fetched um, and haven't happened too far uh, long ago, then you don't know, say, hey, listen, they're believable things. Now he recovers to get it into Pedersen, centering pass, Peterson in the gloves, saved by Husso. I think it's nice that, that you're still playing for something and, um, you know, every game matters and um, you got to be dialed then or else, you know, you're going to be on the outside real quick and yeah, to come to the rink knowing that you have something to play for um, helps out a lot, I think. Chasing the pack for three months is exhausting on all levels. That constant pressure to make up ground has taken a toll. Even though the Canucks have avoided key injuries, it's been a challenge to consistently bring their top game. They are 24-13-7 under Boudreau, but just 16-13-6 since that great 8-0-1 start when the coaching change was made. And they're only playing 500 at home, which has really been the difference between being in a playoff spot or five points out as they currently stand. I don't know why uh, the record hasn't been that good. Hoping it's just an anomaly and that... Uh, you know, in the future, that when you come into Vancouver, you're, you know, you're looking, you're looking at losing, and that's, the, you know, the attitude we want people to have coming in here. By no stretch does anybody, unless they're lying to me, think that we're done. I mean, we have to go on a pretty good run. Check this out, Radko Gudish. Here's another one. On Kirby Dock. Whoa. Everybody's okay, Gudish. That guy has more hits than Drake. He's uh, the guy with the most hits in the NHL this year. That's a big one. Uh, so the Canucks would like to see the Leafs beat the Jets tonight. Even though the Jets aren't in the playoff spot, they are ahead of Vancouver. So it's one of the teams they have to jump over. The Jets were up 2-0. Then they fell apart. Ilya Mikheyev with the uh, shorthanded goal should mention in an empty net, Austin Matthews did score his 50th Leafs win. Well, despite finishing first in World Cup qualifying, at least in their World Cup qualifying tournament, Canada actually went down in the world rankings, which were released this morning. We were 33rd, now we are 38th, and the reason we dropped is because we lost two of our last three qualifying games to teams that were below us in the rankings. So, that means when they hold the World Cup draw tomorrow, Canada will likely be in a World Cup group with three teams all ranked higher than us. However... 
given that Canada overcame low expectations to qualify for the World Cup for the first time since 1986, that probably doesn't bother them at all. Canada may actually be the team that no other country wants in its group. Because when you look back at the final qualifying tournament, Canada didn't lose to Mexico, which is ranked ninth in the world, nor did Canada lose to the Americans, who are ranked 15th. By taking care of those two regional powers, Canada finished first in the qualifying tournament, despite losing two of its last three games. Uh, we're first because we deserved it. We're first because we're better. We're not first because Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica, the States had a bad campaign. We're first because we're better, and that's what makes me proud. Look, it's been a, a journey of 20, 20 matches in World Cup qualifying. Many of the teams have only played 14. We've lost two games. We've won quite a few. And we're off to Qatar, Max. That's, that's all we dreamed of as the champions of CONCACAF. From Canadian soccer players to Canadian golfers, Corey Connors. Valero Texas Open. He actually won this in 2019. This is a 48-footer for birdie on the 11th. Unfortunately, he doubled the 18th hole. He's at two under par. Uh, Adam Hadwin, two under as well. Nick Taylor even. Roger Sloan plus two. The leader is Russell Knox at minus seven. But here's the shot of the day. J.J. Spawn. Picture perfect. For the eagle. Very nice. Hey, you know what was cool? Watch this. This is in Barcelona. This is 91,553 fans. What are they watching? A women's game between Barcelona and Real Madrid. They are rivals both in men's and women's soccer. That's a great goal by Real Madrid's Claudia Zornoza. This is a Champions League game, quarterfinal action, the second of two. Uh, Barcelona won this 8-3 on aggregate. Claudia Pina with the goal there, but the crowd was the story. And it was a great game, too. Nice to see. All there right, thanks for that, Squire. Up next, a BC filmmaker putting the spotlight on Indigenous voices. Jordan Armstrong joins us now with a look ahead to what's coming up on Global News at 11 tonight. Jordan? Sophie, the homicide team is at a suspicious death in Port Coquitlam. A man's been found dead inside a home on Coast Meridian Road near Manning Avenue. We'll have details tonight. Plus, in just a few hours from now, the contracts of hundreds of thousands of public sector workers, including nurses, will expire. At 11, why parking could be an issue at the bargaining table. You'll hear about the nurse who says she has tried everything to get a new parking permit at her hospital but all she's gotten are parking tickets, some very expensive parking tickets. These stories and more tonight on Global News at 11. Sophie. All right, thanks for that, Jordan. A BC filmmaker's latest project is aimed at amplifying Indigenous voices, but instead of putting them on camera, he's putting them behind the camera, teaching them how to share their stories and language in their own films. Jada Ran has more on This Is BC. We have to put the battery in, but basically they self-stabilize like this. Farhan Umedali is packing up for another long road trip. Batteries, cameras, laptops, and his support dog Skeena. You're a good girl, Papa. Yeah. This is high stress environment, and she just kind of brings it down a notch. It hit once, and then it hit it twice, and you get your full energy. For the next month, he'll be hosting intensive week-long film camps with participants from many First Nations in BC and Alberta. I want to see an army of indigenous filmmakers that can go on to do the positive work that they need to do to restore their language, culture, and tell the stories that need to be told. Now watch how I'm moving, guys. The program is free and fully supported by StoryHive and Umedali's company, Vovo Productions. And it's empowering participants to be a voice for their communities. Producing that language and these messages 
I think is going to be the way we carry forward a sense of change and a sense of pride within our culture. Many are learning about film for the first time, yet the results are impressive. That story comes to us as uh, part of our creation story. I'm even inspired to maybe even think about, my goodness, could I make my own feature film? Could I make my own documentary? It's a challenging week to meet the deadline. A few walk away with awards, but everyone graduates equipped with new skills. There we go, so you can control it with my thumb, you see that? Thanks to a patient instructor and an easygoing dog. I really like that you brought Skeena along. <laughs> Everybody gets there, nobody has not succeeded, Jay. Not one. Because I don't know if I could do a film in five days. <laughs> but they do it, and I'm very proud of that. Jay Durant, Global News. And if you know someone who has a great story to tell or something unique to BC, email your ideas to Jay at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Maybe one day we'll see some of those films at the Oscars without the um, mm -hmm. drama on stage that we saw last weekend. <laughs> All right, final word on the weather from right. Christy. Sure. So I, I am going to miss the sunshine that we saw today. It was beautiful. Tomorrow we're back into cloud cover, rain by the afternoon. It will push out on Saturday. We're not expecting a ton of sunshine just yet on Saturday, but we're certainly keeping our fingers crossed. And at least it's a fairly dry day compared to Sunday for our weekend. We'll take it. Thank you. And thanks for joining us tonight. Have a good night, all. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.